0: All right, so we have been diving into this series called I'm Not, with the not slashed out okay. And really this has been a series about self-awareness, about the fact that in the ways that we are not okay, as we bring those to Jesus and as we bring those to each other in community that we can actually change. We can actually go from a place of being not okay to being more okay with the realities that drive our lives. And really we've been reflecting on the fact that it is spiritual transformation and not moral reformation that actually is the mark of a follower of Jesus. And uh, we've been using this image of the rider and the elephant. If you've been following along, you've seen this. Um, and the elephant here is representing just the immense power of our emotions and of our desires. And then we have the thinking brain or the rider. And for the last several weeks, we've been talking about the fact that Most of the time, we feel these big emotions that are the elephant, but we're trying as the writer to manage them. We're trying to control them. We're trying to mitigate them or stuff them down, especially in those spaces where we feel like there's a disagreement here. What I know is good and right and the way that I should feel and behave is not how I want to. And so when they get in conflict, the writer tends to try to manage the emotions. And interestingly, Jonathan Edwards calls this common virtue. He says, there is a way to make people show up as generous and honest and civil humans in the world. Um, But that stands in deep contrast to true virtue. And he says, you know, common virtue, you're trying to control or stuff down the deepest desires of your heart. But in true virtue, the deepest desires of your heart are actually changed. You become a changed person. Moral reformation looks at the rules. Spiritual transformation looks at the ruler, looks at God. And, you know, one of the fruits of the Spirit that we've been mentioning in this Colossians passage that Amos has been talking to us about is this idea of humility It's also called gentleness in the Bible, and in some translations, it's called meekness. So we're going to talk about that today. And some of you got a text from me yesterday. I asked for a little bit of help. I was looking for some data on this because I just had a sense that when we hear the word meek or humble, that it's not positive. So I wanted to see, like, what what do you guys actually think of when you hear this word? So I asked, what was your first reaction to this? And I got some awesome responses from you all. It was really fun to watch those come in throughout the day. Um, Many of you said, meek to me means timid. It means small. It means wimpy, weak, cowardly, scared even. And I thought, yeah, that is, that is kind of what I think about, too. But here was my favorite response, you guys. Mouse. Four people, four different people responded. The first word they thought of was mouse. And honestly, that's what I thought of, too. So I was feeling in very good company with you all. Because, like, you hear meek, and you think, like, peep, It kind of sounds like You're like a peep, peep person, and you don't say much, right? You just keep to yourself. You're quiet, you're timid, you're small, and you don't really have a voice. A couple people, even went as far to say, when I hear meek, I think of doormat. I think of somebody who's easily taken advantage of. You can walk all over them. One person said, I think it's someone who can't speak their mind even when they want to. Other people said boundaryless, voiceless, beaten down, humble to a fault. And all these words were coming in, and it just helped me realize, like, there is a a deeply held belief, I think, in our culture and in our world that to be humble means to be self-deprecating. It means that you actually have to put yourself down to think of yourself as trash And, you know, especially as women, I do think that's the message. Like, just make sure everybody else looks better than you and is doing better than you. And that's really true humility. And that's what it means to show up as a humble person in the world. And, of course, others of you um, had a more positive take on the word meek. I did hear uh, things like submitted, patient, mild-mannered. And, you know, these are definitely part of the equation, Um, but do I really want these things to define me? Like, that's the gut level question that I sat with. Like, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, when there's a challenging situation, if I was only described as mild-mannered and patient, would I still really come out ahead in life? And... I have to be honest, I thought like, no, I'm still gonna end up at the bottom of the pack if that is all that defines me in those spaces. And so I just wanna tell us today, this before we get started here, like humility is a tough sell. This is a tough sell, especially in our culture where we don't know anything but comparison. We don't know anything but climbing the ladder and we want our life to go up and to the right and we always have to figure out where we stand compared to other people. But what I want you to be encouraged by this morning and what really compels me is that Jesus calls himself meek. Jesus calls himself humble in one of his most famous invitations in Matthew 11. Matthew 11:9 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And like I said, this is a tough sell. The way Jesus talks about meekness, he says, I want you to learn to be like me. And oh, by the way, like me is lowly. Lowly in spirit, meek, humble in heart. And again, we are so polarized in our world and we're almost hardwired to figure out what the categories are, what the rules in the world are that tell us how we fit in those categories, and like I said, where we are in relation to everybody else in our environment. So I have just been stunned and amazed by the beauty of the humility of Jesus this week, looking at probably a pretty unlikely passage out of John. And so I want to take us there where Jesus seems to, in this moment, be holding together two realities that don't seem like they should be able to be in tension, be able to hold the same space. And as Tim Keller calls these, um, he says these are paired polarities, right? We were just talking about how the world is separated into categories, but he says Jesus lives in paired polarities, especially in humility. And he says, in humility, Jesus shows us both great gentleness and great bravery. He says, you can be brave and not gentle, or you can be really gentle and not brave and you are not humble. And this verse actually tells us, and oh, by the way, if you are not these things, you will actually find no rest for your soul. You will continue being not okay if you are constantly looking to one-up people. You have to find rest by doing it my way, and my way is one of lowliness. So let's see how this works in John chapter 8 in this encounter. That was recorded in the first 11 verses. So I'm in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he rode on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. This is a pretty incredible story. And the first thing here to notice is that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to prove that he was not the Savior and there was no way that he could ever be worthy of that because they have created the perfect conundrum for Jesus. They think either... Jesus is gonna reject the law in favor of showing grace and kindness to this woman. You know, but if he does that, it's like he's saying, yeah, you know, God has commands, God has ways that he set the world up to work, like, and you know what, we don't need to worry about that. Let's just forget the law, we don't really need to respect it. And then he would be trampling on morality for the sake of showing grace to this woman. And there's no way the Messiah could do that. On the other hand, if he respects the law, he has to reject the woman. And the Pharisees think they've got him. They think they've got him because Jesus has been walking around teaching about grace and mercy and forgiveness, and that has attracted all these really unclean, undeserving, lowly people And so they think, aha, you say, come unto me, all you who are weary. Give me your weakness, and I'll have you executed. No, that's not going to work either. Like, there's no way that he can be the Savior. What kind of Savior is that? So, like I said, you see, this is a pretty good trap because it seems that Jesus has no good options here. Either he's moral and he tramples on people, or he is compassionate, and he tramples on morality. It does not seem like both can happen. Either way, this is gonna disqualify him from being the Messiah. His real reputation is on the line in this moment. His career's at stake, if you will. And I just think, like, if this was me, I would have, my anxiety would just be rising, because remember, he's in the temple, he's, he's come to teach everybody. So he's got this huge crowd around him and they're all waiting to see what's he going to do. And in Jesus' dealing with this woman, she's clearly less moral than him. She's clearly less sophisticated, less talent, not cleaned up. And Jesus doesn't treat her like that. He shows great gentleness and yet real bravery too. And here's the first Uh, kind of glimpse of his bravery that we get, he is doodling in the dirt. They are accusing him, they are scrutinizing him, they are asking him really loaded questions, and he's down on the ground doodling in the dirt. And, you know, Bible scholars have tried to figure out and make conjectures about, like, what was he writing? What does it say in the dirt? And we don't have any evidence to tell us what he was actually writing, So, you would think, well, if we don't know why he was doodling, that's kind of a weird detail to include. Like, why is that in this account that he's doodling in the dirt? And I I really think it's because the writer wants to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus is calm, he is poised, he is unscathed, he is chill. And he doesn't use words right away. He's going to wait this out. He's calm. And really, it says right in there, like, they kept badgering him for an answer. And so finally, he straightens up. But then he actually goes back to doodling another time, right? He is slow to weigh in. He's keeping his composure. And then he finally says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And let me just unpack for a minute why this is just such a brilliant response from Jesus that shows us so much humility. You know, again, the teachers of the law are trying to set him up, but he knows the Mosaic law better than anybody. And here's what I learned about the Old Testament law. This just really astounded me. We tend to think of the Old Testament law and rules as, like, super severe in their penalties. And they were, like... Sin really does get punished in the Old Testament. But the law is also extremely generous in its laws of evidence. So what this means is their system required two witnesses who agreed completely with what they were reporting to convict someone of adultery two witnesses. They had to see the adultery act happen, and they had to have the same details across the board. So in reality, almost nobody was ever convicted of adultery. It was just too hard to do. And, you know, this is beautiful. The Old Testament law is beautiful. And, And I imagine if this case was happening in our current court system, we would be talking more about probable cause. We would be trying to convince a jury that it was probable that something happened. But in this time, it wasn't enough to see two people coming out of the bedroom together and on and on and on about the things they thought they could see. You had to actually see the adultery act happen. And so Jesus says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone And again, we can read this and say like, oh, maybe Jesus is saying, don't worry, everybody messes up, right? Like, he's kind of like just dismissing the law. No, he is actually quoting the law. He's quoting the law because he knows if you're gonna be a witness, you also have to be the executioner. I want that to sink in for a minute. He's not saying only if you're sinless, Can you convict someone? Right, like, that would sound ridiculous. The the teachers of the law would probably laugh at Jesus because they know he's not saying, like, well, sure, if there's a serial killer running around, like, we probably shouldn't put him away because, like, we've all done bad things, so just let him go. That is not what he's saying here. Deuteronomy says that to be the executioner, you cannot also be guilty of the same sin for which you're trying to convict somebody. So you cannot be guilty of adultery to convict this woman of it. And it also says that you have to stone both the man and the woman. So either these people saw the act and they only brought the woman, which would be breaking the law against partiality, and if you do that as a judge, you're supposed to be stoned to death anyway, Right? So they're stuck there. Or they are guilty of false witness and they didn't actually see it happen. This is a slam dunk for Jesus. He's got them. There's no way for these Pharisees to be free of sin. And they were trying to accuse him of denying the law. And he says, No, 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 you don't understand. I do not deny the law. By the law, I deny you the right to be this woman's accuser, witness, or executioner. And they leave. It doesn't say they argued and they continue to try to banter. No, Jesus' simple statement of the truth convicted their hearts and they just, they dropped the charges. This is just truly an amazing act of humility. And you know, Jesus could have humiliated the Pharisees here. That's probably what I would have been tempted to do. Like, dude, you guys clearly don't know your Bible. I'm just going to shut this down right now. This whole establishment is going away. I could just dismantle them. But he doesn't. He's humble. And we get the sense that Jesus was not a confrontation enjoyer. But he also was not a confrontation avoider. You know, I think often when I enjoy telling people where they are wrong, uh, it's just because I think I've got all the answers to their problems. And I really want them to change. In fact, I need you to change right now because somehow that's going to benefit me. And if you don't, then we're just going to be stuck in this cycle. Right? I'm not gentle in that space. I'm like, yo, get your stuff together. But you know, if you're someone who avoids conflict, it might be because you just can't stand to be told that you're not perfect. And that is me too, right? We don't like hearing that there's things that are wrong with us. And again, like, I can be afraid of critical feedback um, just because I don't want people to think poorly of me. But that's just really the other side of the same coin of pride. Pride is lurking when I am either indifferent to someone's criticism or feedback or I am just completely devastated by it. I can't handle it. And I know right now some of you are cringing. I don't want this to sound shameful or punishing. I want you to know like I want to be a community where we are humble people. And so we just have to look at this stuff and I'm right there with you in this. Um, But here's another little checkpoint. You're not humble. If you are either totally inflexible or completely flexible in all of your beliefs and views about the world. So I wanna lighten this up a little bit with a funny story here. Um, we were doing a virtual game night on Friday with Amos's family, and I learned a new game called Wits and Wagers, which I found out someone in this room knows what that is. That's so great. Um, but if you don't know what Wits and Wagers is, it's basically like a trivia game sort of like Jeopardy meets The Price is Right. So they give you this fact, but they leave out the numerical value, and everybody in the game throws their suggestion in for what one of those numbers would be. And then you have chips and you place bets on which number do you think is actually the closest to the real fact, but you can't go over, you can't go over the limit. So it was final Jeopardy, Amos was losing really badly. He, at the end, he's like, I didn't know I was so bad at trivia games. I'm like, yeah, who would have thought? So he's losing, and he, the thing with Final Jeopardy is, right, you can can bet all of your chips. And so he was like, this could be my chance to win. Uh, I could come back from behind. So the question that we get on Final Jeopardy is, what is the fastest recorded airspeed in miles per hour that a wild turkey can fly? Okay, who thinks of these things, by the way? I don't know who has time to study these facts, but I kind of want to hang out with them. Um, Okay, so that's the question that comes up. We are all like, this is absurd. And Amos and I shot somewhere like what we thought was reasonable in the middle. We thought like maybe 35 miles an hour, okay. Well, my sister-in-law, Hannah, just is exuberant. She is thrilled that this is the question because she's like, guys, guys, I've actually seen a wild turkey fly. And she says, I was on the highway. I was driving and it was keeping up with me on the highway. So Hannah puts out, down 68 miles an hour as the top guest. So we have one mile an hour at the bottom, 68 at the top, and lots of choices in between there. And Amos is like, do wild turkeys even fly? Like, he's not sure. He thinks this is a trick question. And I'm like, I don't know. And so he's like, I'm going all in. I'm going all in on like 15 miles an hour. There's no way that this bird can even get off the ground, let alone go as fast as Hannah's trying to tell us it's going. You know, but Hannah's like, but I've seen it. And he's like, nope, doubling down. Well, turns out a wild turkey at its fastest can fly. 55 miles an hour, and so Amos lost the game, and it just erupted in cheering and laughs, and we have been bantering about it since. So here's the thing, though, and and this is not a slam on Amos. I asked his permission to share this story with you, but he had a lack of information, and he did not allow Hannah's experience, right? She, She had an experience. She brought herself to the situation, shared her story. He did not allow it to change himself. He was completely inflexible in his views, and he lost the game. And I know that's a funny example because it's a game, but we do this in life, guys. We do this in our relationships. We do this with our theology. We do this with our politics. And I know that's not a popular thing to say, but this is what we do. And it just leaves us feeling not okay. Because we're wondering, when is the chip going to fall? When am I going to get outsmarted? When are these things that I've put my hope in going to crumble? And you know, the awesome thing about Jesus is he knew every possible angle for how to deal with this situation, but he had no need for comparison. He didn't elevate himself, but he wasn't self-deprecating either, right? He, He knows who he is. You don't ever see Jesus going around like, oh man, who am I? Like, I don't don't know, I don't just, might work, try this. No, he never says, I'm a nobody. He never knocks himself down. He's not a doormat. He says, no, I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I command armies and I can deal with your sin. He makes these huge claims. Jesus acts like nothing and he knows he's not. And so humility, I just want you to know this today, humility is not that we think less of ourselves, it's just that we think of ourselves less. And Jesus was able to submit to people in this space, to love them well. And you know, the Greek word for humble, this is hilarious, is actually prouse. Funny that it rhymes with mouse. I think that's hilarious. But "prouse" is used when you describe kind of how you rein in a wild animal when you're training a stallion. So it actually translates as like a tamed wild animal. It retains its power. It just chooses to constrain it. And Jesus chose to become the submitted one for us. And interestingly, I'm going to put that image back up here for you guys of the elephant and the rider because I noticed there's a third person in this picture. And it's the man walking on the ground. And this is the guy who's actually leading. This is the one who's leading both the rider and the elephant to make sure everything is in harmony, everything is synced up. And Jesus leads us to bring our hearts and our minds into alignment with his So as we close this morning, I just want you to know this is the heart of the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. And in this scene with this woman, there's this tender moment between Jesus and the woman when the accusers have left because they no longer have grounds to stand on for her. And it's just this woman and Jesus standing there and he says, where are your accusers? And I think the order of Jesus' words here are important. He says, I do not condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Grace and acceptance were given first. And then this woman is able to overcome her habits that are enslaving her. And you know, I can almost imagine Jesus standing there as he's speaking to this woman just in this place of immense inner freedom because he knows the debt has to be absorbed. He knows that. And he knows it's going to be him that absorbs it. And you guys, no other king and no other religion will get you this. Either you are guilty and you are condemned or you are not guilty and you are not condemned. But Jesus says here, You are guilty, and I do not condemn you. And this is the only reason this morning that I can stand here and say, I am okay. I can be not okay, and so very okay in the same space because Jesus shows me how to be both brave and gentle even with people who don't get it. You know, we can imagine maybe this woman understood what he was doing for her in the moment, like pardoning her of this sin in the moment, but she had no idea that Jesus was going to go to the cross later. So humility is loving people who don't get it, who aren't grateful, who aren't even aware. And it starts with this realization that I don't get it either. I don't have all the answers. And you guys, now more than ever, we are going to need to live into humility with each other to be able to come together and say, all the voices are heard. I have space for you. I don't have it all together. And humility is going to be the thing that frees you up internally from comparison so that there is more space in your life to love. So let's pray. Oh God, we need you. Jesus, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning that you would come and that you would make us absolutely fearless in who we are. And absolutely gentle, patient, mild, long-suffering. God, we're so thankful that you have accepted us in our sin, and yet you say, I do not condemn. And God, I thank you that more than rule following and behavior management, that this reality that we are deeply loved in our mess is the thing that's gonna change us. So we ask you now to come and meet us in worship and begin to soften our hearts, Lord. You are so kind to us, God. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.